I'm Damian Bulwa, and this is an emergency joint episode of Fifth and Mission, and it's all political. What you just heard was the sound of people celebrating in New York City after the call went out that Joe Biden had won Pennsylvania, pushing him over 270 electoral votes and making him the president-elect. That was from a tweet this morning by Margaret Sullivan of The Washington Post. So, the big news. Biden will be the 46th president of the United States, assuming President Trump's legal challenges fail. Biden's running mate, California Senator Kamala Harris, who was born in Oakland, is poised to be the first black woman and first Asian American to be vice president. Joe Garofoli, senior political writer and host of It's All Political, and Tal Copen, our Washington D.C. correspondent, are with me. Guys, what a week. Thanks for coming on. Of course. How could we miss it in this in this moment? Yes, good to be here. We've, we've been awake all week, so why not? What an ending. Uh, Tal, what, what finally happened that pushed us over the edge? I, I think a lot of us were, were, you know, reading our stories, watching CNN, and then all of a sudden everything was moving. Yeah, so it's been a long week. <laughs> Uh, should, should we go into a little bit of the backstory of how we got to this moment? Because I think it's important to understand why, um, in the end, it was a couple thousand votes that mattered um, in an election where uh, close to 150 million were cast. So what we were waiting for um, was a moment where the, the presidency was Joe Biden's beyond an absolute reasonable doubt. It's felt inevitable, arguably, since Wednesday. That was the march that we were on. Biden was slowly uh, but surely gaining ground on Trump as the mail-in ballots that are heavily Democratic were counted in states that had counted the in-person vote, which skews toward Trump. Um, they had counted those first. So the mail-in ballots were coming to get really in the weeds. Early on, a couple places, Fox News and the Associated Press, called Arizona for Biden. That is the state that is now most in doubt. And so in the shadow of this call that looked a bit premature, as all these other sort of factors started tipping towards Joe Biden, there was this sort of doubt on the board. So finally, Saturday morning, we got, I kid you not, somewhere around 3,000 ballots counted in Philadelphia. And that was it. That was the moment that Pennsylvania looked beyond a reasonable doubt. It was enough electoral college votes to be over 270. And every decision desk went ahead and made the call in that moment. Okay. So for the history books, that did not include Arizona. Arizona was still being considered not in the balance. Correct. Pennsylvania still pushed it over the top. Correct. And at that moment, uh, Nevada and Georgia were also not called, as well as North Carolina and Alaska. Uh, but in Nevada and Georgia, Biden had very strong leads in that moment. And a lot of pressure had been mounting in the past couple of days. Why aren't you calling Nevada? Why aren't you calling Pennsylvania? Georgia is in recount territory, so that's understandable. Uh, but, you know, with with that Arizona call that looked shaky on the board, Everyone was waiting. They wanted to be absolutely certain. And once those couple thousand votes from Philadelphia came in, Pennsylvania mo moved beyond the margin of a possible recount. After that, uh, Nevada has been called at the time we're recording this. We're still waiting on Georgia and Arizona votes to come in to see where those end up. So we know that Joe Biden will end up 
with somewhere between 290 and 306 electoral college votes, assuming North Carolina and Alaska stay with Trump as they look in this moment. Got it. Okay, we are recording this at 10 a.m. Pacific on Saturday, and we've learned that Biden and Harris plan to appear together to speak. But Joe, it doesn't sound like President Trump is going to concede. Yeah, let's let's not hold our breath uh, for a concession speech uh, today, tomorrow, or any time before Inauguration Day next January. That's just that's just not where he is. And and I was uh, this morning. I'm, I'm, I've been talking, uh, and last night I've been talking with folks, uh, Republicans across California, Trump supporters, and they say that's why they like him. They don't want him to to concede. They that they like him because he fights. I'm talking to one person who is a um, physician's assistant and also a, a a leader in the Republican Party in uh, in California, in the Central Valley, the most conservative part of the state. I say, well, what what issues do people like? about the president. You know, they said it's it's not so much that they like him because he's a fighter, he fights against the system, a system that is unfair to us. So that's what they like. They and they think that Trumpism will be even more powerful after Trump is is uh, is gone because they he has sort of activated all these folks who may not have been politic, particularly politically active. Remember the president got 70 million votes. 70 million Americans overlooked a lot of things that that uh, a lot of people, 74 million people in this country found uh, horrible and objectionable. And they liked that. They overlooked it because they liked him. So we, I want to come back to that, Joe, in terms of what a Biden presidency looks like. He obviously uh, will, will take office, assuming these legal challenges fail in the midst of a pandemic and a, and a racial justice reckoning. But first, Tall, the history with Kamala Harris taking office. Uh, I know you've 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 talked to to her and her family about it. What does this mean? It means so much, and almost so much that I alone could never put in words. Uh, I have a story about this uh, up on San Fran- the sfchronicle.com. Uh, I should say that again because I kind of bungled it, sfchronicle.com, in case any of our listeners are not uh, already bookmarked on our homepage. I spoke with Congresswoman Barbara Lee of Oakland for that story, and her words to me encapsulate so much because she herself is a groundbreaking politician. Uh, She's from Kamala Harris's hometown of Oakland. You know, Barbara Lee is almost this bridge from Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman to run for president, to today. Uh, and Kamala Harris, she has endorsed Kamala Harris early in in virtually every campaign uh, that Kamala Harris has run and when others doubted her. And Barbara Lee told me that she feels seen and heard in a way that she has never felt seen and heard in her life. And to me, that's so powerful. And it, and it really encapsulates why, yes, we could run through the litany of factoids that will be trivia fodder for decades. You know, Kamala Harris is the first woman ever on a successful presidential ticket. She's the first black woman ever to be vice president. She's the first woman to be vice president. She's the first Asian American to be vice president. She's so many, many firsts. It's almost overwhelming, but it's not about you know, who put their name in the history book. It's about what it means for America. And what it means for America is that young women, young black women, young women of color can look at someone on the national stage and say, that person looks like me and they did it. And I can do it too. 
And who knows what kind of floodgates are opened uh, after that moment. Hey, Atal, I think you're selling yourself short there because you actually have a lot to say about Kamala Harris. That's in our six-part podcast titled Chronicled, Who is Kamala Harris? that you and I did and is available on sfchronicle.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Absolutely. Yes. Good point. <laughs> Got got to plug that. Got to get I, the plug in. Come on. Oh yeah, I want to tell you. Yeah, the mini series uh, that's called "Chronicled: Who Is Kamala Harris." It is available wherever people get Fifth and Mission, and it's all political. So it's a great time to do that. Let's take a quick break on this joint emergency episode of Fifth and Mission, and it's all political. We'll be right back to support the work of these reporters and to support these podcasts please subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. There are both print and digital offers. Welcome back. I'm Damian Bulwa. You are listening to a joint episode of Fifth and Mission and It's All Political, the podcast of the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm joined by Joe Garofoli, the host of It's All Political, and Tal Copen from Washington, D.C. Uh, Joe, what does a Biden presidency look like? We talked about how all the challenges he's facing, but he's also looking at perhaps a Republican Senate. This is not going to be easy. It, it, it won't be if there is a Republican Senate, uh, which is in the balance right now. They, uh, there's going to be two at this point, looks like two runoff elections in Georgia, which will be essentially for control of the Senate. And without a, a Democratic Senate, Joe Biden's uh, agenda is, is not going anywhere fast. Uh, he was elected on the the most progressive uh, platform in in, uh, Democ- in in American history. Really, uh, he wants to affan- expand the Affordable Care Act uh, by allowing people to buy into Medicare. He wants to. Uh, he has a, a, a two trillion dollar uh, 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 jobs program essentially on re- to uh, on renewable energies, not the Green New Deal, but it's a stronger action on climate change. He wants the U.S. to be fully powered by renewable energy by 2035. Um, he wants uh, free college tuition for families that make hundred less than $125,000 annually. He wants to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. He wants to roll back the, the uh, uh, Trump tax cuts and raise the top income tax rate for people making more than four hundred grand. Uh, a lot of things that are, that are you know, more liberal than we've seen in a while, but Without, uh, as long as Mitch McConnell is still the head of the Senate, uh, that's that's not going to happen. I want to ask you both, uh, uh, perhaps a tough question, which is number one: What is the legacy going to be of Donald Trump? And also, what do these next weeks look like before the scheduled inauguration on January twentieth? I mean, um, what is Donald Trump going to do? I, I mean, as one person, uh, sort of well put, (laughs) dunked on me on Twitter, you almost need a a fortune teller to answer that statement, (laughs) not an, not an analyst. I mean, here's, here's what we know. Uh, To this point, Trump and his campaign have refused to admit the results of this election. They have insisted it's not over. Uh, And to be fair, it's not, it's not certified. He has legal challenges outstanding uh, to this point, experts and Several judges have said they're completely lacking in merit and are easily summarily dismissed. Um, You know, he still potentially could claw back Arizona. It will not change the outcome of this election. 
There are various other shenanigans scenarios that people could perhaps uh, spend a few hours amusing themselves coming up with. Uh, But what is very real is the fact that Donald Trump will be president until Inauguration Day. And, you know, there will still be a Republican Senate and a Democratic House. And we could see executive orders. We could see attempts to move legislation. TBD, the long stalled relief for the coronavirus pandemic that is still raging, even as our eyes have been elsewhere in the past few days, uh, that remains unpassed. Unclear if that gets done in the lame duck. So we could be in for a tumultuous several weeks on many fronts. And uh, to a certain extent, we are going to have to wait and see how the key players involved choose to proceed in those moments. Let's not forget that, you know, whatever Trump decides to do, there's also going to be pressure on key Republicans in Washington, including Mitch McConnell uh, and to a lesser extent, uh, Kevin McCarthy in the House, uh, to see what they do in response to whatever Trump might do. Joe, doesn't the American electorate deserve a well-earned break? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be uh, waiting, what, expecting one at least for another couple months. Uh, the the uh, and let's also talk about something else that the president could do, which is pardons. Re, you know, there's a whole line of people who could be pardoned, uh, or could be asking for one, or waiting for one, or expecting one. Uh, so let's. That's another thing out there. The the long term impact of the Trump presidency. Uh, is the root of it is what the Washington Post has been cataloging for the last four years. More than 20,000 lies and misstatements. Not only that, he has uh, devalued the institutions that many people rely on. Uh, He devalues not only the media, uh, the intelligence agencies, uh, justice, uh, his own justice department, which he uses as his personal attorney. Um, He he devalues facts. We, we in the, very early in his presidency, we were introduced to the concept of, quote, alternative facts. What the hell is that? That doesn't exist. Um, so that is the that is the legacy of the Trump presidency. Uh, On the other hand, again, three three Supreme Court justices. Oh, yeah. And attack yes. and a tax cut that is in place that with a, a divided uh, Congress is probably going to be difficult to overturn. Those those judges, uh, uh, not only at the Supreme Court level, but throughout the system, are going to be affecting uh, American life for decades. And, you know, some of that is Mitch McConnell's legacy. But, you know, and the other thing, I mean, it's almost remarkable how easy to forget it is that he was impeached by the House. Yes, this year. <laughs> I mean, or, and, I'm sorry, last and, year, but the, yes. No, this year. It was this well, year. Well, no, I'm That's sorry, right. you're right. Last it was late year, last acquitted, year. It was late he was acquitted last year. this yeah. year. Acquitted, yeah. How and, soon we forget. You know, God. and it, it, that became long forgotten memories so quickly because of the pandemic. And, you know, another one of his legacies will be, and I can't believe I have to say this, 200 30-some thousand and counting dead Americans uh, and millions more uh, who were infected with this virus that obviously was not his fault, but, you know, struck America and the world on his watch. And that is that is one of those things that will be a defining moment of his presidential legacy, whether or not he had any control of it. Uh, and, you know, history will write the review of how he handled it. 
Let's address one more issue that is very important to California, and that is that Kamala Harris will need to leave her Senate seat. It's a big seat. And and Joe, how does that work and who is likely to take her spot? Well, here's how it works. The uh, Our governor, Governor Gavin Newsom, gets to pick her replacement. And uh, this is a, 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 a huge responsibility and a huge opportunity, uh, not only for the person who will be the senator, but for Governor Newsom. Uh, because uh, on one hand, he gets to, he will uh, piss a lot of people off, <laughs> but uh, he will also get to uh, make some people happy and some of his, uh, some at least some sliver of his constituency happy. Um, there is a uh, an expectation and pressure for him to pick a Latino, which would be California's first Latino um, uh, senator and in a state where roughly you know forty uh, percent of the residents are Latino. That is a huge deal. Um, now, the, uh, I asked Governor Jerry Brown about this, former Governor Jerry Brown, when he was on uh, on our Chronicle chats the other night, and uh, he said what uh, you know he said the, he expects Newsom to pick a constitutional officer, one of the statewide elected officials. That way, Newsom has the advantage of making two picks. He gets to pick uh, the new senator, and he gets to pick the replacement. So that puts two people in the lead for that. That would be Attorney General Javier Becerra and Secretary of State Alex Padilla. Um, It could go either way there. I think Padilla is personally closer to Newsom. Uh, He's a, a... He's uh, he's from Los Angeles. He came up through the city council there, uh, served in the state legislature, um, and then he would get to pick someone else. Other people uh, on the short list are uh, Long Beach Mayor uh, Robert Garcia, who would be the first LGBTQ senator uh, in California history. There's already one from Wisconsin, Tammy Baldwin. Um, And uh, there's um, uh, also people like uh, Karen Bass, who was on the short list to be vice president. Uh, there's uh, Barbara Lee got uh, a lot of votes in the, um, in a, in a recent poll, but I would, I would look at Becerra or, uh, Padilla to be the choice mostly because of, um, they Newsom could get a twofer out of that. And it's, it's almost, it's almost very hashtag California. I mean, there's so many potential firsts that could be made, but you know, if either of those two were selected, that would be the first man to represent California in the Senate in, in a few decades. Wow. That's right. Since 1992 was, uh, 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 that's how long it's been that we've had uh, female only senators in California. Well, we had to break through at some point, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> give a, give a, <laughs> All right. Well, I want to let you guys get back to work. I know you have a long day ahead of you. Thanks to Tal Copen, our Washington, D.C. correspondent, and Joe Garofoli, host of the It's All Political podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks, bud. Absolutely. Thanks to my guests today, Joe Garofoli and Tal Copen, two Chronicle reporters. Joe is the host of the It's All Political podcast. And a reminder to catch their miniseries called Chronicled, Who is Kamala Harris? six-part deep dive into the career of Kamala Harris, who's now the vice president-elect. Thanks also to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.